Welcome to Public Cloud for Public Good, a podcast talking about cloud sustainability and how we can use public cloud services to make the world a better place. Today, I'm speaking to Mark Butcher, who is the Director of Positive Cloud and organizer of the UK FinOps community. He is a data center and cloud specialist who focuses on improving sustainability for enterprise IT businesses, whether that's on-premise or in the cloud. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Yeah, I've been really keen to catch up with you and interview for this podcast, especially since I've been following some of your posts on LinkedIn. The one that really resonated with me was when you were talking about scope one, two, and three when it comes to carbon emissions. Do you want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah, no problem at all. So firstly, thanks for having me. It's it's nice to be on here. So sustainability and digital pollution, it's a bit of a strange one because everyone thinks they know about it, but no one's really actually aware of the impact that digital services are having on the environment or even how to kind of measure it or where to start measuring it. And the whole scope one, two, and three bit is rapidly becoming a problem because scope one and two has always been the something that companies cared about because they were kind of measured on it. And scope three, they didn't really care about because it was the someone else's problem. And into that bucket was falling lots of horrendous stuff, like all the outsourcing that gets done, even things like public cloud provision and consumption, anything that's delivered as a service meant that customers, as far as customers were concerned, it wasn't their problem anymore. So they were giving the problem to someone else. So they weren't really measuring the impact and there was no real focus on efficiencies or awareness of how good, bad or ugly those kind of services were. And that kind of applies to anything they were using, even their entire supply chain. So the manufacturing of a server or a rack or a data center, anything like that, all falls into sort of the scope three bucket, including the the impact on the the environment of the actual construction and the raw materials. And so following the entire supply chain all the way down to not just the bit that you can see. It's definitely these are the sort of things that are really difficult when it comes to sustainability, not just in cloud computing, but you think about electric cars. So, you know, the idea that an electric car is going to be better for the environment, but you dig a little bit deeper, look at the supply chain of the batteries or, or think, you know, actually, is this the best decision rather than just not driving at all? Um, and I, I guess you can kind of see that when it comes to businesses and, and how they make IT decisions. So, you know, we, we decide to use the public cloud because we can throw all those responsibilities over the fence rather than worrying about it ourselves. Yeah, and, and absolutely. And so don't get me wrong. What I'm not saying is the public cloud is bad because actually the average kind of public cloud data center is in general operated massively more efficient than the bulk of the data centers that you'll see in the market. And yes, and there are many out there which are every bit as efficient. There's some fantastic new, new, you know, new builds going on with data center providers building out co-location facilities that are beyond efficient. Everyone trying to get down to, you know, the, you know, the 100% efficient type, type service. But the reason the public cloud providers have typically been ahead of the curve because A, they've had the investment and B, it delivers some commercial advantage. So they make more money if they're more efficient. So that for that reason, they use the most lean infrastructure they can. They use the least power they possibly can and they measure everything they possibly can to be as efficient as they can because it impacts their bottom line. Yeah, and it is definitely one of those things where hyperscalers, especially Amazon Azure, can just do things at a different scale that we can't even think about. You know, there's going to be a world of difference between throwing a PC down the back of a cupboard in your office versus building a £7.5 billion data center off the coast of New Zealand when you can use seawater or other innovative techniques to cool the data center without relying on powered pumped water or whatever else it might be. 
One of the really interesting things I came across when I was speaking to Microsoft, uh, they did a really interesting virtual data center tour was, you know, even the choice of location of a data center in the UK, a lot of our data centers are clustered around the north or in Ireland, um, because that band of the world has is, is got a less temperature variation than other locations. And that just means you don't have to cool it as much, and you don't have to heat it as much. And, you know, not all of us can make sort of decisions like that about where we're going to be placing our IT. Yeah. And and there's also impacts on not just not just where you place the data center, but also the, the time of day in which you're using the services. So you get the carbon intensity of the actual electricity consumption in its own right as well. The bit that gets forgotten though is when you get back to this whole scope one, two, and three, if you think if you thought of all the all your emissions as being a pint of Guinness, the froth at the top is the scope one and two. So typically scope one and two emissions are only about 10 to 15% of your total emissions. Your scope three emissions are the 85 to 90%. So by ignoring the kind of the scope three bit, you're missing out on vast amounts of digital pollution and problems you're causing the environment. And that's where that's where a lot of people now need to be focusing because suddenly companies are increasingly actually becoming accountable for that. It's now actually being they're being demanded by their shareholders, by their investors, by by their customers. So people are actually making procurement and purchasing decisions as consumers and as investors based upon actually how sustainable is that organization and can can they actually tell me what their footprint is and you you are right definitely when it comes to sort of making decisions you know you see ethics when it comes to stuff like the use of social media i think you know something like facebook have definitely gone down a path now where we all just look at and go is this good for the world and it gives us this bad feeling and we don't want to work there or we don't want to use it you know we start seeing that in the rest of our technology whether it's the websites and how they're hosted or clearly you know I'm not saying data centers are power based and malicious, but you know, it, it is something that you can you can see when consumers are making these decisions. You know, it is I almost think that sustainable tech is almost like the new vegan in some ways, is is like, okay, we've challenged the food industry and we're seeing a big difference. Like people say that individuals can't make a difference when it comes to certain things. And I personally have a bit of a thing about personal responsibility myself, but you know. You do look at stuff like KFC or fast food chains where they now are given more options. It'd be great if hyperscalers could give us more green options. This is the green data center or this is the service that is more efficient than others. And, and that information is sometimes lacking, I think. Yeah, so I, I kind of like to throw something back at you there as well, though, because whilst if you, if you break it into the sustainability of the cloud and the sustainability in the cloud, so the of the cloud bit, absolutely. The, the kind of the hyperscalers need to be operating the most efficient data centers they possibly can. They, they need to be reinvesting the absolutely mind-boggling profits they're making into making those services as efficient as they can be. And they need to be sharing the metrics openly and transparently. And that is a big problem today is that they're not actually sharing it transparently. No one's using a consistent calculation model. So there isn't really no real support for a single metric that you can use. And from an outside perspective, it's actually impossible to gain access to the accurate information from all of them and aggregate it together, which represents a real opportunity in the market, clearly. But it's creating a pain for any, any big organization that is now trying to do sort of the environmental, social and governance type um, reporting, so the ESG reporting. It's, it's really hard if you can't actually get accurate calculations and you have to make estimates. But that's the, that's the sustainability of the cloud. So, yeah, it's in their interest to operate it efficiently. But think about the sustainability in the cloud, and that's where the personal responsibility comes in. So if you're thinking about organizations and developers and operational teams, the problem is in IT, we always start at trying to solve the problem from the wrong end. So we're starting at the problem, is it, is it looking at optimizing services? So looking at waste inside a cloud service. The bit that comes out in the world of FinOps, which I work heavily in, the financial cloud management, is that 
on average, 45% of cloud spend is wasted. And what that means by wasted is over-provision service, over-design services, services that aren't switched off, so development environments that run overnight and are never terminated, storage volumes which, which are detached and never used again, copies of data which are left duplicating out there forevermore, redundant environments running which don't need to be there, or environments running on old platforms that could have been moved to a new modern processing type or instance type. Yeah, and you've definitely touched on a few points there. You know, It's not just about how we can make what we're doing right now more efficient. It's also making decisions about can we actually stop some of the things that we're doing? So, you know, whether it's because we're keeping all this data for regulatory reasons or we're just paranoid someone's going to check up on us, it's, you know, just get rid of that data after X amount of years if, if you're able to because are you ever really going to look at it again? It reminds me of people who go to sort of concerts and, and take a video of the phone and then it's like, are you ever really going to look at that again? Businesses could be doing a lot more to just say, okay, this is something that we should or shouldn't be doing. And that touches a little bit on sort of, you know, sustainability as a non-functional requirement. So not only do we look at it from, okay, let's just be the most efficient when we're doing technology, we're making technology choices, but, you know, how can we think about whether we should be doing this at all when it comes to other contexts and, and the business decision that we're making here? Yeah, and, and that's a big point, which is your customer journey, as in your company's customers. How, how are they going to consume the services and platforms that you're building? And how are you going to make conscious decisions? And that's make it making sustainability an embedded design practice and functional requirement. So if you go back, say, 15, 20 years and, said to, and had said to someone, you need to design this for accessibility, they would have looked at you with, with cold, dead eyes and said, what, what on earth are you talking about? But now every application and service has to be designed legally for accessibility. And what we need is to make sustainability as embedded a practice as performance, security, accessibility, Get it on that list so that when you're making a decision point for designing an application or even writing your non-functional requirements before you even get to that stage or even defining the business requirements for an application, actually writing, say, actually, we're going to make a conscious decision, which is we're going to put the priority of sustainability over performance or sustainability over accessibility or, or conversely, actually making that reverse conscious thing, but knowing that you've made it. So actually making that decision yourself to say, we're going to make this application less sustainable than it could be and documenting that decision. So you're crystal clear why you made that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, we all, we, sometimes we don't really realise it, but, you know, we sometimes have to make decisions that are less sustainable than others. But for example, one of the easiest ones to talk around is backup. You know, if you're going to have an active-active backup, that is less sustainable than having a cold start recovery because you need to provide that uptime or that service to your customers. However, if maybe you've got a hobby website or, or you're doing something yourself and, and you don't need near millisecond response times or, or, or backups, then you could obviously make a decision there that is more focused on sustainability. Being a sad geek that I am, so I come from the world of storage backup and disaster recovery, and I could bore you all day about the inadequacies around backup policies and procedures because the average big enterprise, through it's either it's either lethargy, lack of time, or lack of desire to even look into this, but they nearly always treat all their data the same way, regardless of kind of the you know the quality of it, the the type of it, the, the importance of it, and so they end up keeping copies of everything forever just because they're too scared to go back to the business and challenge them. And, that, and that's kind of the issue is that on that kind of thing, you're keeping in most companies, you know, in big companies, it's hundreds of petabytes of data. And that is a huge amount of information on spinning tin. And that's kept in three, four or five different locations. Yeah, and it is true. And and I think, you know, it, it's almost similar to sort of us as individuals when we have our email inboxes hosted by Gmail or, or Outlook or whatever else. And, you know, I've got years and years and years of emails that I've just kept because, oh, I might need that one day. Or even if it's spam, even if it's whatever else, I probably never sat down to think, should I get rid of this? You know, when it comes to sort of backup policies and retention as well in, in businesses, I feel like 
these are the things that we sometimes think is somebody else's problem. So we'll go, okay, well, that's the, you know, the operations team or, or, or the strategy team have come up with this policy for, you know, how it works in our business. But we don't really get those decisions or those kind of considerations down, maybe even to like the acceptance criteria when you're building applications and services, you know, should this data be stored for a certain amount of time or? The chain of thought process that typically happens is so as a provider, you go in and you see IT and you try and sell them your backup solution or platform and they tell you it needs to be sized for this retention level for these types of data for this long. And you start asking questions and they say, oh, well, that's because that's what legal have said or governance team has said. <laughs> you talk to legal and governance and they say, oh, well, yeah, that's because that's what the business has demanded. You talk to the business and they go, I don't know, talk to the auditors. And then you get back to the auditors and they've just used a generic template recommendation from some other environment somewhere else. And there is actually, there's no actual legal reason in many cases why they're keeping it. And luckily, I am starting to see on a positive note, I'm starting to see some organizations saying, actually, we're hitting this hard. We're now taking the ethos of we're keeping nothing more than six months apart from the following data sets and types, which we're automatically classifying. Everything else will be deleted. It will go unless you have a compelling business justification that you have to make because of the impact on the environment. Well, I feel like we probably dove quite deep into some very technical topics. Let's pull back a little bit and, and maybe just touch on a couple of different things. So looking through your work history, you're currently the director of Positive Cloud. A little bit jealous because it's probably a better name for the podcast like this than what I've chosen. Uh, but also you worked at um, a, a company called Data Vita, which you said was the most sustainable and best uh, data center in Scotland. Um, I was wondering if you touch on some of those points. Yeah, so... so, so- Data features facility, it's a purpose-built data center, which was built with sustainability in mind. So it uses every bit of possible cutting-edge technology at the time. This is only going back to, say, 2016, when, when the facility was built. And it operates with, with a design PUE, which is a terrible term that any data center providers will be screaming at the, at the screen now, telling me I'm stupid for saying it. But it's a metric that everyone uses to measure efficiency of data centers. It operates with a design PUE of around 1.16, 1.17, which is pretty efficient compared to most co-location facilities. Um, facilities like a lot of Googles operate with as low as about 1.08, but to be at 1.16 to 1.18 is pretty efficient. And, and the key point there is that anyone moving into that facility will see a massive reduction in their power requirements and, and their power charges and their associated carbon emissions. And the company also is, is actually in the process of building out fully sustainable and renewable power generation specifically for the facility that they're, they're building themselves. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, you know, looking at that measurement, the PUE, if we were to look at, you know, what would a on-premise data center that we've run ourselves or, or what would be the sort of, you know, the, the cupboard full of all of our servers rack, what would you sort of say is an estimate of a number that you'd, you'd be looking at for something like that? So if you, so if you go down the, the metric of the, the real nasty one, which is the cupboard full of racks with a, with, a, with a few fans cooling it, boiling the oceans, that can be as high as a PUE of three, easy, easily and comfortably. Luckily, there aren't so many of those around now, but the average mid-enterprise data center, which is sitting there running with a bunch of racks, is at least around two to two and a half. But that's only one fractional part of the story. It's actually, it's the, it's the how you built that facility. It's the materials that have been used to build it. It's, the, it's all the servers that you're running within it. It's just part of the overall story. And, that, and that's what, again, people are now starting to realize is measuring just the power consumption and the scope one and two is only one part of the problem they're trying to solve. It is really interesting because, you know, you mentioned before is you get see a lot of businesses who are being pressured by shareholders, you know, to look and, and be more sustainable, uh, not just look, but, you know, actually do more things. 
and it's definitely you know a similar sort of vein is my background in the public sector before I was sort of left last year a lot of more departments a lot more government agencies in the UK were focused on okay what is our sustainability strategy for IT and actually what can we do um do you think that like you know making business decisions like to build a data center with aiming for as most efficient as possible be the most sustainable is going to be a USP or, or a benefit in the long run when people start making decisions in this way more in the future I'm not convinced in the wisdom of any organisation, unless they're of a specific size, building their own data centre facility now, when there are so many really, really good co-location facilities and cloud providers, which are always going to be more efficient and more invested in. Because the problem is, if you build your own, that's just an exercise in throwing money away for year after year after year, as you're constantly fighting to make it as efficient as it can be. And you're never going to be able to keep up with the curve. It's almost a one-time thing. And then 10, 15 years later, you're back at the same problem. But equally, I don't think everyone needs to go to the cloud because that isn't the answer for every service at all. The truth for most organizations is a hybrid world. But the key point they need to get to is being able to measure the impact regardless of where the workload is. So they can make conscious decisions on placing workloads based upon sustainability being one of those metrics. Yeah, it's really important to have those measurements, isn't it? And, and I think that's where we're starting to see, like you mentioned earlier, Google being a bit ahead of the curve versus Amazon's dragging behind a bit. You know, you've mentioned about this idea of responsibility of and in the cloud. Um, that comes from uh, Amazon just released the new AWS sustainability pillar and their shared responsibility model. But you know, one of the things I'm kind of find frustrating in that whole model is is this idea of proxy metrics. You know, the idea that we need to look at, okay, what is our storage capacity? What is our networking usage and our compute usage rather than here's some hard and fast figures to help you make decisions. Do you think that's an issue in the industry right now? And will we see a change there? Yeah, no, so it, in many ways, I don't want to say it angers me, but it does kind of because if the cloud providers like that saw money to be made, they would focus all their attention, it would happen in days. But because this isn't seen as something which is going to generate huge return, or conversely, some might argue, is there something they don't want to be showing, is an argument which I've heard come out, which is the sustainability figures need to be as available as cost and usage metrics. They need to be standardized dashboards, alerts, and reports that you can get for not, not at a proxy level, but actually an individual service line, an individual application line, whatever metric you're looking at, you should be able to visualize you know, a rolled up thing for saying, actually, on a on a per unit basis, what is this application costing in terms of emissions for all the scopes one, two, and three, and recommendations for then optimizing it off the back of that and make so you can make conscious decisions. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you there. You know, it's sort of the thing where I find frustrating when, you know, you look at Amazon, and I don't know all of this detail, but there's definitely experts out there who are closer to some of this. But when you think about every single Amazon service that's released, not only do you see the front end and the APIs that control it, but every single one of them is a very detailed feed on what feeds the cost explorer system and feeds the billing system. And that is a massive part of their requirements. And every single one is, is held to account to make sure that they provide the correct information. I mean, as much as you do get billing problems on AWS, they're not usually down to the unit costs. It's probably some aggregation elsewhere. They, they do this really well because it's designed. It's the way they bring in income. They could do exactly the same if it was sustainability. It's just they've chosen not to. And I mean, that's the other thing is, you know, if I was to add something onto the AWS wish list is, you know, where's my sustainability explorer, not just my cost explorer? Well, the key thing I would like to see is, very simply, accurate metadata appended to the cost and usage reports specifically related to sustainability, giving scope one, two, and three, and also then optimization tooling. Because there's so many, I mean, if, if you throw a rock out the window, you're probably going to hit a FinOps tooling vendor these days, and they need to be taking it seriously, actually building in metrics themselves for reporting and alerting and offering remediation. Because 
in the world of optimization, even if you strip out sustainability as being a consideration, all we're talking about is optimizing services to make them as efficient as they can be, but just viewing it through a different lens. So rather than saying, you know, the triple XL is better than the XL size variant, we're actually going to look at it and say, actually, the most efficient new processor running is actually the AMD powered instances, which have just been released and they're not available in the region that you're in, but you need to move your service from there to from Dublin to Frankfurt, for example, and giving people the conscious decision and the alerts to say, actually, at this time of day, because there are lots of transactional workloads which could be delivered anywhere at any point, which, which aren't latency dependent, which aren't you know, held back by being able to migrate. You could say, actually, you, know, you need to run the following services at three in the morning in Frankfurt, because that's when actually the climate intensity is at its lowest. That's where the power mix is the best. That's where the most, <laughs> the most easy access to the lowest powered services are at that time. Yeah, I, d- I definitely agree with that. You know, some of the other tips I've come across is even just around how you use the spot market. You know, instead of scheduling all your jobs on the hour, choose a minute in between the hour because everyone else is going to be scheduling it at the default figure, which is either one o'clock, two o'clock. Put yours at two forty-five, and you'll have a sort of better market to be using there, and and they'll be more efficient. And also automate the hell out of everything because that's where so many delays happen in this kind of thing. But when we're talking sustainability in the cloud, because Humans don't make decisions at the rate at which you can get them made if you're automating things. And that just requires you to think about how you're building your services. So think with automation and sustainability as one of your core design metrics and think about every step in this. Now, our development process, how do we automate the pipeline? How do we eliminate redundancy? How do we look at the code that we're actually developing? So looking at the, you know, the code libraries we're selecting. That's an interesting one in terms of, you know, actually it comes down to, you know, sustainability in the cloud now. We're talking about, you know, the decisions and choices we make. Easy one to think about is, okay, let's choose serverless technology versus EC2. But you've mentioned the code and the code language, I guess, that we choose to use. You know, something I saw at last year's reInvent was something like Rust is a lot more efficient than maybe some other languages like C++ or JavaScript. You know, is that something you think developers could think about more as, you know, what is the language I'm using next? And, and can I solve problems with, with more efficient languages? Yeah. And, and which, again, going back to what we said right at the very beginning is making sustainability an embedded practice across every area of your operations. So not just having it at the back end, which is the wrong end to be focusing on it, because you're, you know, that's, that's like stopping the tide coming in. It's just new, new badly designed requirements are being thrown at you all the time by people. It's not that they're bad generally. It's just that they're bad from a sustainability perspective because the developers aren't being measured and tasked on is this the most sustainable code? Can it be stripped down any further? And also, how are you going to measure that? And I saw some great work actually in central government by, um, I think it was GDS, where they, they were actually rating the development teams, both outsourced and insourced, um, almost on the, on the fridge rating of efficiency. So they were getting efficiency based on code. And it was, a lot of it was to do with spend optimization. Yeah, that, that fridge metric came from us at the home office, actually. Uh, so we designed it for in terms of like our overall efficiency of like kind of that cost optimization level. And it was down to cost. And I think, you know, as much as we can focus on cost as a metric, it, it isn't always directly related to sustainability. And, and that's something that, you know, I almost need to catch myself sometimes because, you know, if I say I've saved a, a customer £100,000, that doesn't always mean I've saved them anything to do with carbon emissions because I could have just signed a reserved instance or a savings plan or, or done a commercial deal. And that's why you need to break it into what is a sta- what has that impact and what doesn't. But in general, if you come at it from a sustainability angle, almost every sustainability saving tends to deliver a cost saving. There aren't many that don't. You'll always find some, but there aren't many that don't. But conversely, there are loads of cost optimization which don't deliver a sustainability benefit. You know, like moving to a savings plan or moving to spot or moving to there's lots of things that don't. But if you go back to the point about 
automating and optimizing, then if you're automating everything at the same time, you're making faster decisions better on a cons- in a consistent quality. So actually, all we're really talking about is making services run better and be more efficient. And it just happens to have a really positive impact on, on the world if we do that. Yeah, save the world and save money at the same time. It's like, you know, it really will please your shareholders if you actually start focusing on it. But coming back all the way from that, then, if you then go back from even from the development teams into the line of business. So we did, we did a project last year with, with, with quite a big online retailer. And the fantastic thing was that one of the outcomes of it was they'd never really looked at their customer journey. So when they were throwing it, so take a simplistic um, web application. This was, you know, it's a, an e-commerce site, stuff full of images, videos. Everything was, everything was always pushed out in ultra HD type quality. Everything had audio, audio full encoded all the time permanently because the marketing teams decided that's how everyone, you know, everyone always streamed all their videos and did everything. Everyone watched everything, the glorious music, tinkly music, all that kind of lovely stuff. But when they actually looked at the analytics of it, which they hadn't really done from the context of sustainability, it was more than 85% of their content was viewed on mobile devices. And those mobile devices don't interpret the ultra HD images in the first place anyway. Yeah, there's yeah, no point in having 1080p if your screen's the size of a bloody, you know, your hand. Yeah. And the other key point was that more than 90% of the of the traffic had the audio disabled. So they were streaming it. It was being received, but it was never being played. What they've done is they've now taken the conscious decision. So they're now going down the path and they're in the in the path of doing this is to be sustainable by design on their website and all their operations. So they're enabling the consumer to make the conscious choice. So they're now saying that, you know, by default, you're going to get the sustainable version of our site. You, you have to toggle the switch and select, I want to burn the planet effectively. So I want to be less sustainable. So all, you know, when you search in their filters, by default, it's going to be buy the most sustainable product downwards, unless you make a conscious decision. Yeah, I find that really interesting because it comes to like another idea of, you know, mentioned the marketers te- team this time. So yeah, the marketing team, what the flashiest, the coolest, the best high quality videos, they spent loads of time and money probably recording these things. So, you know, we want to get them out there to consumers. And you kind of see a similar pattern when it comes to developers and tech leads where it's like, you know, oh, I'm going to follow the shiniest new latest technology or this re- blog post I read online. And, and that may not actually be the best decision or, or the most sustainable, I guess. And I think it's interesting that even if, you know, you don't know exactly what you need to do to make your company more sustainable just by adding the sustainability as a conscious decision or a non-functional requirement can help you stop and, and think about this. And yeah, that's the one thing I definitely, you know, concur as well is this idea of that we build things without thinking about the user needs. If our users are on mobiles, they're streaming low data, they don't want to use all their data allowance, for example, on a mobile, then we're not actually helping these people at all. We're making it worse for them. You know, I think, you know, for me, if I've got a mobile and I've got low signal and it takes 10 seconds to load, that's going to be a lot worse customer experience and going to make me less likely to buy something than a really efficient load time because the actually, even just the data that's being stored on your website is low. You know, this is something I thought about for, you know, the, the podcast website itself is like, I kind of want it to be as efficient as possible rather than just flashy as possible because, you know, that is actually shown sustainability and will just help people have <laughs> better engagement with the site. So, But if you think about all those things, it's then going down the metrics. It expands further and further the conversation. You start saying, well, actually, in marketing, if we're going to then do everything in standard definition instead of ultra-high, if we're, if we're not going to send a million texts out to our customers, if we're not going to send a million spam emails out to our customers, because actually you have to start measuring what's the success of the things that we're doing. And does it deliver value to the business? And if something does deliver monumental value, then you're making the conscious decision to carry on doing it. But at least you know that you've made that decision 
And if your auditors come calling, your shareholders come calling and say, what have you done about it? You can at least show you've considered the impact of this in everything you do all the way through. Because then you start doing that and it flows from requirements into development, into design, into delivery, operations, and ongoing culture. And then it becomes this iterative thing that you're always trying to fix as embedded as accessibility, security, and performance. Yeah, these things that we review our workloads on, it's like that before. It was like, you know, if you have a default acceptance criteria for all of your tasks or epics that cover these considerations, then at least you're thinking about it as you're building. But yeah, not just building and forgetting about it and, and throwing it over the fence, reviewing it afterwards as well. We'll get back to our interview soon, but I really want to highlight that it's not all doom and gloom in the world. So now is the part of the show where we shine a spotlight on companies, charities, and organizations that are contributing to making the world a better place. Supporting ethical businesses and charities that are doing good in the world is the easy way for all of us to also contribute when we're able to. The business I want to highlight today is Rumble, a gym with locations in Paris and London that describes itself as a community that thrives on radical inclusion, sets goals, and supports each other to crush them. And it gives back to the world one workout at a time, as they are committed to planting one tree every time you go and work out. They're making the world a better place, one tree at a time. One of the other things I wanted to touch on is is you're also the organiser of FinOps UK uh, and and the meetups there. What's that community like? Is there a big budding community of people who care about FinOps and and GreenOps in the UK? Yes. So, so green ops is obviously a new one that people are only, you know, it's, it's another new buzzword that everyone's going to hate, which is great. So the FinOps community, going back sort of three, four years ago, was tiny. And now, so FinOps.org, which is the FinOps Foundation, which is part of the Linux Foundation, has grown exponentially over the last couple of years. It's, it's you know, thousands upon thousands of members across the world. And some of, some of the organizations who are members, these are people spending you know, multiple billions of dollars a year on cloud services. So some of the very largest consumers you could possibly get, you know, people like Apple, Salesforce, those kind of people. So it's a massive community and it goes from that end of it all the way down to the people who are blinking into the light going, oh, I'm just shutting my data center and I'm scared. What's going to happen to my cloud bills? So the global community is really big and every country is growing new meetups. No, that's, that's really interesting. You know, thinking about the, you're talking about there is people who are looking at, you know, what they've always done in their careers or, or where their experience is and, and worried about the future. That, that, this is one area where I do speak to even my family members who are like, Oh, I don't know what I want to do. And I'm like, look at cloud because, you know, in, in some senses, it is a massive industry and it's always growing. I think the growth of Amazon in particular over the last few years has been kind of like just enormous and it doesn't seem like there's any sign of stopping. And, you know, if there's an industry around helping people save money from the cloud bills, basically what we're doing here is taking money away from Amazon, giving it back to those customers and, you know, having a cut of it as well in, in some senses. And, you know, as long as Amazon grows and the cloud usage grows, which inevitably it will with the trends that we see in technology and the efficiencies that they can make as, as market leaders, then... One, one thing I have seen you know, sort of interrupt was was it from all of the cloud providers like that is that it doesn't matter whether it's Google, Microsoft, or Amazon, they all kind of come into this optimization world under the realization that the short-term gain of having a customer having really badly designed over provision services is not good because in the long term that customer's going to go away if they carry on doing that. So they actually encourage the world of FinOps because they want things to be run efficiently because then the customer stays and they get more longer-term revenues. And that's definitely something that I'd agree with. And, and, you know, if anyone's out there that's listening that disagree with this, then please let me know because I'd be really interested in the story. But when I worked really closely with my account teams at those cloud providers, you know, they were 
hand in hand helping us migrate services to the latest version of technology moving to serverless or even just getting these efficiencies and these commercial deals in place you know make sure you buy ris make sure you put saving plans in place because yeah they want that customer experience and you know there's a little bit worry there that it's a it's a long game you know let's see what happens in 10 15 years time to uh, all of our services and our costs but yeah for now they are definitely encouraging people to to be more efficient and if you do need any help definitely a place to start and ask them yeah, no, and, and, and the thing like that, if you look at the, the pace of innovation with them as well, so they're doing things faster and better than anyone would ever imagine. And the lock-in with a cloud provider is not at the kind of the instance level. And if anyone says you can dynamically move between cloud providers, I think they need to go and take a long, hard look at themselves. Because un- unpicking a, a service design when, when you're actually using all the platform services and all the other SaaS, everything all the other services that come with it, it's a much harder than you would ever, ever, ever imagine. Yeah, you either have to make decisions that means you don't use any native services on the cloud at all, and you're always using stuff running your own VMs and, and virtualizing it on top of TIN, and basically getting none of the benefits of the cloud, or you're locked in. Like, even if you talk about Kubernetes, for example, and you've got your own container, and you might think, oh, I'll move it to EKS to GCP, then, okay, you can, but... What happened to the, you know, the front end or, or the other integrations, the other tools and services that sit outside the containers that you're integrating with? That's going to be a lot of work to re-architect and, and redo. And the nice thing, though, if you go back to the world of sustainability and digital pollution, is it's a bit like the FinOps community in that it's a very friendly community of people who are like-minded, who are trying to do a good thing to help people. And what we're finding is it's, it's very much the open source community mindset. So... There's people that kind of across Europe and across the world. We're all working together as part of one kind of alliance to try and actually understand what can we all do to help people optimize, deliver services better, and design them better. There isn't the sort of the protectionist nature that you might expect in other areas of the market. A lot of us are working together on projects you wouldn't expect us to as well. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe we did make a good point earlier on. Is like you know the FinOps community is a little bit friendlier than maybe the InfoSec community and, and a little bit less protective. <laughs> maybe they just attract different people. And, and I, if there anyone looking at cost optimization, I would wholeheartedly recommend that they join FinOps.org because it is a completely open, non-commercially based organization and everyone helps everyone. And you can just by joining the community, get access to the Slack channel and you will get so much. I mean, the questions that go in there, they're from the very basic to the most arcane you will ever see. And you always get help from someone. Yeah, that that's one thing I've found kind of over the last few years in, in terms of my career is actually just kind of stopping and stepping outside of my organization and joining these communities outside, whether it is, you know, something associated with my, my a company related to FinOps or something associated with Amazon or, or a meetup group. Because, yeah, when you are stuck and you can just throw a question into the void and, and get a response back, it is so useful. It's a bit like a more friendlier version of Stack Overflow, I guess. Yes. And the nice thing is, if you get nothing else, what you actually get back is everyone saying, yeah, that's a real problem. We haven't fixed it either. Let us know when you do. Yeah. But it gives you that feeling that you're not alone. And yeah. you get the most hive mind effect of people then trying to work <laughs> together to go, actually, well, this didn't work, but I tried this. You, it might work for you. You go and try it. Here's a copy of the, you know, the script or the code or the, yeah, the vendor that I've used. Yeah, and you can all you know, badge together and uh, go and shout at your favorite cloud vendor together. So... It's been really great talking to you. One of the things, obviously, in the podcast we want to touch on as well is, is, you know, it's not all doom and gloom. Let's sort of focus on some of the other better things in the world. So as part of that, we'll be making a donation to a charity of your choice. So would you just be able to talk about, you know, the charity you've chosen and why? Yeah, so, so the one that I've chosen is the, um, the Wildlife Trust. And it's one that I've supported for quite some time. And one of the reasons behind that has been because they do a lot of outcome-based work. So it's actually, they're actually tangibly delivering improvements to the environment to offset some of the damage that's being done elsewhere. 
and and they're doing more than just kind of a bit of tree planting here. They're thinking about all areas of the habitat, every area of the environment. So it's they're a great set of people to work with, and, and yeah, wholeheartedly support what they do. That's really great. And then the other thing you sort of want to finish up on before you go is if, if there was one tip or trick that you want to give to developers, senior leaders out there to be more sustainable or make the world a better place, what would that be? Right. To keep it really simple, just think about the implication of what you're doing. Think about sustainability as a design criteria. And even if you spin that back to being an end user, just think about switching things off. Well, think about that, you know, that email you're sending, do I need to send it? Just question, does it actually have to be sent? Because every little action we have, it might seem tiny, but you pile the, the hundreds of millions or, or billions of those actions that are being taken globally every single day, and you realize the impact of that, how it scales so fast and so quickly. So my, my point would be, every tiny action has consequences, and think about whether, it, whether you actually need to do it. Yeah, and like we said before, you know, when we look at things at a higher scale or a macro scale, shareholders think about profits a lot of the time and, and businesses think, well, do you know what? I don't really care that my IT cost is growing because my profits are growing alongside it. So as long as it doesn't get too out of whack, I'm fine with this situation. And that's where, you know, us as individuals and developers and people working on these teams can go, do you know what? This isn't fine. The fact that we're storing that much data over there for no reason just isn't fine. And we could probably just maybe even challenge the one, thing, the one thing I would finish on for, for IT folk out there is even if they're not being pressured to look at this today, it's coming and they need to get hold of it. Because the reason I say that is that the C-suite, so your CEOs, are increasingly being bonused upon them, their organizations reaching net zero. And let me get this straight. If a CEO is bonused upon something, it tends to happen. So it's coming towards you whether you like it or not. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, net zero might seem like a very far away kind of goal you think about 2050 but you know we'll be there sooner than we realize and we'll need the skills to get there as well so well thanks so much for talking to me today and uh, yeah hopefully we'll speak soon and i'll see you at the next finops uk meetup thank you very much for the time thanks so much for listening this podcast was brought to you by imbue a cloud sustainability consultancy there's one final thing from me i would love it if you could do one thing this week to make the world a brighter place And if you do want to share it with us, then please get in touch with us on social media or leave it alongside your review as a comment. 